You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour-over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, GOLDENWEST. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today on the show, we have Erica Stancliffe winemaker at Fendler Vineyards. Enjoy my conversation with Erica. Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great having you here. So I think before we get into, you know, the beautiful Pinots and Chardonnays and everything that you're making, let's first step back and talk a little about your history and kind of how you got into wine. Okay, so um, I am born and raised Russian River Valley, Forestville, Sonoma County. Um, My parents were actually home winemakers and they had a group from Hewlett Packard that would get together and make wine on the weekends. So I've been raised around plenty of wine and vineyards my entire life. Um, And it wasn't until actually my mother started working for Paul Hobbs in the late 90s that I had my first introduction to commercial wine. So real wine that people would buy and actually drink instead of what my dad made in his garage. Um, Paul became a very close family friend and it was through his guidance that I actually decided to go to school and get my degree in enology from Fresno State. And then of course, working for him down at Viña Cobos in Argentina and coming back and getting my career started in production. Wow. And what was it like growing up in the Russian River Valley and being around wine kind of from a young age? You know, as a kid, the last thing you really want to do is what your parents do for fun. Yeah. um, (laughs) So, you know, I obviously it's absolutely gorgeous out where I live. And I, of course, came back to live in Sonoma County after going to school in Fresno because it's just so beautiful out here. And, you know, I... I definitely was lucky growing up in Forceville and I kind of wish I had realized how lucky I was when I was a kid because people like Mary Edwards were our neighbors and Carol Shelton and I grew up with all of these amazing winemakers and it wasn't until I actually went away to school that I realized how lucky I was to grow up where I grew up. 
Yeah. And was there any particular wine that you tasted early on where you were kind of moved by it? Or like, do you remember drinking wine when you were at least old enough to do so? Or was it something more of an afterthought until you started really working in it professionally? You know, I was about, I was in middle school and Paul came over for dinner one night with my parents. And I was so used to my dad shoving glasses in my face, asking me to smell wine because I have a very, very sensitive um, sense of smell. So I could smell right away if a wine had VA or some other issue with it. And so Paul brought over this bottle of 1997 Michael Black Merlot from Coombsville in Napa. And he poured a glass for me and asked me to smell it. So of course, my first instinct was, well, what's wrong with it? You know, being like 13 years old. And Paul looks at me and says, there's nothing wrong with it, Erica. Just try it. And so I smelled it and I took a sip. And all of a sudden, it was just like the the fireworks went off. It reminded me of my mother's blueberry cobbler that she had made the day before in preparation for the dinner. And I just started talking about all of these things that I smelled and tasted. And my eyes went really wide. And that's when I realized wine was something so much more than what I had just seen in my parents' house before. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. I, I know for me, just kind of throughout my wine journey, being able to taste and drink a lot of different wines and different varietals, sometimes there'll be a light bulb that goes off along the way for people where they just pick up kind of all these senses or something clicks where they're able to, oftentimes I find it's being able to relate kind of food smells into wine, as you just kind of mentioned, like a blueberry cobbler or even things like sage notes that you might pick up and smell on a Pinot Noir or something like that. So I think uh, that's really interesting. Now, you went off to Fresno. Talk about enology for people who don't know what that is and kind of what you were studying and how your experience was learning kind of the technical parts of winemaking. Definitely. So I actually chose Fresno State over UC Davis um, because Fresno State has a winery, a bonded winery on the campus and 200 acres of farmland with vineyards. So for me, I got to go to school. I was very lucky knowing exactly what I wanted to do with declaring my major in enology. And about 90% of my classes were chemistry based. So microbiology, biochemistry, and all kinds of crazy other things that I haven't needed <laughs> since those days. But um, but the best part about going to school in Fresno was actually being able to go out into the vineyard and harvest the grapes or prune the vines for my final, getting to go into the winery. And our classes were actually producing the wine that Fresno State sold. So it was very hands-on experience, a lot of practical experience. And while the chemistry is extremely important and learning all of the science behind it, in my opinion, there's no better way to learn how to do something than by actually getting to do it along the way. So getting the theory, but then also the hands-on practical approach was just so amazing for my education. Yeah, and at Fendler, you're making Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and we're gonna get into that. But you mentioned 
the Vina Kobos internship and obviously working with Paul Hobbs uh, must have been an amazing experience. You're working with Cab, Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, Cab Franc. What was that internship like in working with those varietals before you kind of returned to the Napa Valley and uh, kind of learning how to, you know, make wine with Paul? Um, you know, it was it was amazing. I there's a special place in my heart for Mendoza, but even more so for Bordeaux varietals and Bordeaux blends. Um, being able to make Malbec down there and really work with Malbec and Cab Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon was just really interesting because Pinot is such a different animal. Cab requires less finesse and more grunt work to make it just because it's such a hardier varietal and there's just so much more that you need to do with pump overs and timing and the fermentation. And so getting to learn a lot of that as my first internship was very valuable to see how much work really had to go into making some of these red wines. And it definitely has made me appreciate being a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay winemaker so much more because of that. Um, Because I always like to say that our wine starts in the vineyard with the quality of the grapes. So um, it, it was definitely a very valuable experience and I loved it. It was kind of a, like, hey, you're out of school, kicking the butt, go down here and make some wine and work some crazy long hours in a yeah. speak very well or very fluent Spanish. And you're going to do it, kid, get this done. But I absolutely loved it. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an amazing experience and to be work- and to be working with Paul Hobbs and being in a different country. Oftentimes I hear about winemakers going over to, as you mentioned, Argentina or New Zealand Uh, different parts around the world, and then returning back uh, to kind of bring their experiences. I've heard that from already a handful of winemakers. I think that's really interesting. Now, you came back to Napa Valley. Talk about your experience at Rudd. And I think a lot of people are familiar familiar with Rudd. Um, They make amazing wine, and they also are affiliated with the uh, restaurant called Press in Napa Valley, which is an amazing uh, place to visit, too. Um, what was your experience like there? It was amazing. So, um, Patrick Sullivan was the winemaker at the time and he used to work for Paul Hobbs. So it was a really, um, really great experience to work with someone else who I kind of had known through, um, growing up and while my mother was at Paul Hobbs and at Rudd, we had so many more, like so many more toys. We got to play with more things for fermentation. So we did, cement fermentation on um, red varietals and we had eggs for the Sauvignon Blanc and got to do all of these different fun things that I didn't have in Argentina because Argentina is just it's still very old world meets new world technology and Rudd was like here's the shiny brand new car and here are the keys have fun and make something amazing Um, it was definitely a lot of work uh, going and having to roll barrel fermentations down in the cave when it's you have an 85 degree propane heater blasting at you and you have to roll a barrel really quickly while throwing the bung in it so that the you know you turn the berries that are fermenting inside but then you have to stop before a volcano pushes out the bung from all the co2 during fermentation so that was kind of the morning ritual and 
just absolutely loved it. It was great seeing more of the artistic side of winemaking in the sense of different fermentation methods and using wood, cement, and stainless steel. And I really learned a lot of valuable experiences from my time there. That is yeah, it sounds like a lot of work, that intense experience. A, a lot of people, I think, are somewhat surprised, maybe not maybe not, you know, others to an extent, but just the manual process, the amount of hard work and labor that really goes into making wine, and especially the type of wines that you make and that you've made in the past, of the really attention to detail and the hands-on work. Obviously, there are machines and there's new technology, but the amount of just hard work and kind of hands-on labor is so intense. Now, you mentioned the um, stainless steel and the cement real fast. Which varietals were you working with uh, with there? Because sometimes I hear about uh, GSMs, you know, uh, in being uh, used in cement or stainless steel, but I was just curious on that, which varietals? So for the cement fermentation, we were doing kind of co-ferments of Cap Franc and Cap Sauve or uh, Petit Verdot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And then the closed top stainless fermenters were pretty much all reserved for just the Cabernet that came off of the estate vineyard. And um, Rudd also has this little vineyard um, kind of behind one of the car dealerships off of uh, Spring Mountain that has like Alicante Boucher and Grenache and some oh, other interesting. Okay. varietals. So we actually did the barrel fermentation those wines and that was really fun to kind of get to do you know punch in and then barrel fermentation where we actually took the head off of the barrel put the grapes inside put the head back on put them down on railroad ties and then use the railroad ties to roll the barrels to mix them during fermentation that's so interesting (laughs) so that kind of leads us into you know present day here um fendler winery we can get into how you met kimberly fendler and you're involved with the petaluma gap wine growers alliance talk about how you were able to come on board at fendler and then we can get into some of these wines um so i am currently the president of the petaluma gap uh, wine growers alliance and in 2017 it was actually my first year on the board and i was the vice president And we have this event every year um, for the Sonoma County Vintners called the Sonoma County Barrel Auction. And since the Petaluma Gap was a brand new ABA in 2017 with our petition, um, we decided to do a collaborative lot of female winery owners and winemakers versus men winemakers and winery owners. So that's how I got to meet Kimberly was we had Fendler, Um, My family's winery, Trombetta, the Klein Vineyard, Brilliant Estate, and we all got together, and and Keller Estate, of course. Um, We all got together, brought in our wines, sat down at a table, tasted through everything, and it just came together so beautifully, being able to create a blend out of these amazing different vineyards in the Petaluma Gap, put them in a collaborative lot, and we actually outbid our counterparts in 2017. So we won the little battle we were having with the guys. But um, that's how Kimberly and I got to know each other. And just tasting her Pinot while we were getting ready to blend our lot was just, wow, this is really special. This is a really cool site. Where is your vineyard? And 
that's how we started to get talking. And then she reached out to me to have me come on board as her new winemaker. Yeah, that's a really cool story and how you're able to kind of champion female winemaking. And as you mentioned, kind of getting a one up there um, and notching a win. So the history is pretty interesting for this vineyard going back to 1992, uh, a family vineyard planted in uh, Sonoma Mountain Ranch. Um, talk a little on the history and a little bit about the site itself and the soils and just kind of parts of the vineyard. Yes. So um, the first piece of the vineyard that was planted in 92 by um, Peter Fendler was actually planted to Cabernet, which is kind of funny because oh, funny! in the 90s, people didn't realize that, you know, Pinot grew so well in Sonoma County. Everyone wanted to be like Napa, so they wanted to plant Cab. And um, so the first ranch was planted to Cabernet, and then it was grafted over to Pinot after the realization was made that it's way too cold in the Petaluma Gap to grow Cabernet and have it actually ripen. Interesting. Um, and the home ranch is really cool because it has a lot of that adobe clay that the Petaluma Gap is known for. Um, so if you're walking through the vineyard in the middle of, you know, the ripening season in the summer as we're getting into the fall, you'll notice that as the as the soil starts to dry, you get those huge, large crevice cracks throughout the vineyard that the adobe clay is kind of known for. And adobe clay is very rich and dark. But then the other two sites that are planted on the mountain as well, the Pulis site and the Helgren site, don't have nearly as much of that adobe clay. Um, Pulis tends to be a little more rocky and some kind of sandy loam. It's at a lower elevation around 800 to 900 feet, whereas the first ranch that was planted is more around 1,200 to 1,300 feet. And Helgren, which is at the top, over 1,500 foot elevation, has more of that kind of um, cobbly loam, but also rocky consistency. So all three of the sites are at different elevations with kind of different soil profiles, which is really fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes I'll hear about a vineyard having different soil types, um, different clones, and kind of being able to have that spectrum of different tastes from different blocks, even on the vineyard. Um, so that's really interesting. Now, let's get into some of the vineyard management and some of the kind of farming practices that are being used uh, on the vineyard site. Definitely. So we are fully uh, sustainable farming, which means that we don't like to use chemical sprays on our vines. We don't use Roundup. Um, we try very hard to be good stewards of the land. Now we have, we're very lucky that we also do have an abundance of water where we are located. And because of the Petaluma Gap and the very cool mornings and evenings that happen there in the Gap, we don't actually have to water too much either, which is really nice. So we try just to do the best by our vineyard and by the land, um, excuse me, by the land that we're farming. And we're very lucky that it creates a beautiful end product. Yeah, and let's get into these wines. So first, we'll start with the white. So we'll, we'll start with white and work our way to red. So the Chardonnay, 
And then we can get into a little bit about your winemaking style and kind of the the style that you are going for for both of these wines. But the 2019 Fendler Vineyard Chardonnay, uh, you have the notes up on the website. Uh, and I've tasted through both of these. Both were really delicious. So rich honeysuckle, citrus blossom, green apple, lemon curd on the nose. Um, those are some of the notes. People can go to the website. We'll link it here in the show notes. And then, of course, the... Uh, the lingering finish of crisp acidity and, and lemon peel. Talk about this wine and kind of the style you were going for when you were making it. Definitely. So Puddle and Gap is known for retaining its acidity. And that's something that's very special about the area where the Fendler Vineyards are located is we have beautiful acid, but because of our higher elevation, we also get this beautiful concentration of fruit characteristic in in the grapes. So um, this, the Chardonnay comes from the home ranch, the original planted parcel and the Polis vineyard. So it's the lower and the medium elevation. And my winemaking style really is to be, I want people to open a bottle of wine and taste the site. The sites that I work with are all so beautiful and so unique that my job as a winemaker is to do justice of the vineyard because the vineyards are, you know, the high elevation, the cool coastal fog that comes in, the wind that comes in, it just creates the perfect balance of acidity and concentration on the fruit. So my job as a winemaker is not to mess that balance up when it comes into the winery. Um, And also the wines are very elegant. Um, You know, Kimberly and I have talked about the vineyards and the sites to long extent and just there's a beautiful elegance that kind of happens with that fruit so I was very reserved on how I made the Chardonnay in the sense of that I I fermented in French oak and of that French oak it was about 45 percent new but after fermentation I actually took some of the Chardonnay out of the French new barrels which not a lot of winemakers will do they'll usually take a neutral barrel to break down after fermentation And I took it out of the new French oak to top it up so that it aged in more neutral oak to really kind of help with the mouthfeel and adding some of that nice long drawn out um, mid palate and finish to make it a little creamier while retaining the acidity. Yeah, and like you talked about, I think that's a balance that I know I like when I'm drinking wine is to have that fruit being present, but also the fresh acidity, especially going if you're drinking with food and to kind of have that balance um to me it was you really did strike that balance perfectly and as you mentioned um be the site where you're at being able to have that ripe fruit but also balance it with the acidity is uh is is really great um let's move on to the pinot now the tech sheets are also on the website so people can download those and they're a lot of uh, great information for the kind of the wine geeks who want to really get into you got the bricks level at harvest a specific harvest date the clone and um and everything there so getting into the pinot um, this wine was amazing. The, the the Chardonnay was was awesome, but I will say I'm more partial to reds, I guess, is, anyway. But this Pinot was really uh, out of this world. Um, it was you did such an amazing job. The the notes on this black tea, rose hip, ripe purple, and red fruits on the nose. 
um, you know, complex pomegranate, blackberry, fresh black tea. <laughs> uh, sometimes when I'm drinking a wine, I, I like to kind of figure out what I'm tasting. And then I'll also look at the notes after. And sometimes it almost helps me pick up some of those notes like, oh, yeah, that I am tasting kind of that blend of pomegranate or that little pinch of cinnamon or sage or whatever it is. So that's kind of the way I, I like to do it. Um, but let's get into this Pinot. There's there's a lot to get into here. Yes. So the Pinot is all from the Helgren site, which is actually the top elevation. Um, and it's really fun because we have two clones in that vineyard. We have Swan and Calera. So the way that I approach this vineyard, because you know, the high elevation is above the fog line, which means really long ripening, um, really cool evenings, and no moisture, which really helps it. But it gets a lot more force of the wind. So that's where the concentration and the color come from, is those skins are so much thicker and the berries are so much smaller. But the way I approach it is you have both clones, and we harvest them at the same time. However we ferment them separately. So I have two different tanks, one with the Swan and one with the Calera, where I then make the Pinot the same way, but I really like to see how those clones develop on their own in fermentation. And I think it adds to more complexity in the end wine to have the um, two clones ferment separately. So I treat them as completely separate wines all the way up until the week that we bottle. So what that means is they ferment separately, they're barrel aged separately, um, they barrel age in different coopers, all French oak, about 45% new once again. And then we taste through the barrels and Kimberly and I sat down and tasted through everything and decided that we loved it as a 50-50 blend, which is normally what we do pretty much every year. But being able to have that decision of, what are we liking more this year? Are we liking the Swan a little bit more? Are we liking the Calera a little bit more? And, you know, the 2019 vintage was, it was one of those vintages where it was like, I can't pick a favorite. I love both of these. Um, so we were able to put them back together just the week before bottling. I really like to let those wines develop on their own and then bring them back together. And it just adds so much more dimension and complexity to the fruit. Yeah, and you, here on the website, it gives all the information and uh, talks about the bricks at harvest, 24.7. Let's talk about that for people who don't know what bricks is and kind of how you think about your picking decision. So bricks is degree sugar, and what bricks correlates to is not just the sugar levels, but it gives you kind of a guideline of how much alcohol will be produced from the sugar um depending on what you think of as your conversion rate so typically once you get over 24 bricks you're in the 14 percent kind of category um what i'm always looking for when i'm making harvest decisions is not just the sugar levels but also where the acid is with the sugar so that balance of as the sugar goes up the acid goes down and my job is to find that perfect kind of intersection of those two different lines to decide where the ripeness is and where the balance is. But also what I'm looking for is the actual phenolic ripeness of the grapes. So how did the skins look? How are the berries? Is the pulp, 
You know, is the pulp actually ripe or is it still very gelatinous? How are the seeds? Are the seeds starting to brown? Are they still neon green? So there's a lot of thought process that goes into a harvest decision because you're looking at the actual ripeness of the grapes on top of the flavor, on top of the chemistry. Yeah, that's. I think that gives people a lot to think about. And you already talked a little on the oak, but maybe we can touch on your feelings on oak. I know you did touch on it already, but also how you think about whole cluster, whether you want to use that or if you don't. So for oak, I always love to say it's a great spice to have in your cabinet and to well season your food, but it's not something that you want to overuse or underuse. That's a great analogy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you don't want your food to be over seasoned or under seasoned. So Part of the job of a winemaker is to find that balance where it can fit in characteristic of the fruit and the acid and help elevate the wine as opposed to mask it or um, kind of just overshadow it. And I really do like the Coopers that we're using. Um, right now we're using Francois Frere, which of course everyone kind of knows Francois Frere is the, the famous French oak because it's the more... I, I guess I would call it the more boisterous of the French oak. It's very, um, has a lot of really beautiful like characteristics that it imparts in wine, a lot more of those baking spices and cinnamon and mocha kind of characteristics. And then uh, Ramon, which is another great producer that I love because it elevates the fruit and really helps with the mid palate development. So it really comes down to finding the right coopers that you like working with, the right toast levels, and then just kind of playing around with that to find the right balance with your wine. Um, Now with whole cluster, I absolutely love utilizing whole cluster in small amounts, but with this vineyard, there's already so much texture and so much richness. And with the Petaluma Gap having that tannin because the skins are so much thicker on those little berries, I don't know if I'll ever use whole cluster on this vineyard. And that's solely because there's already so much tannin and texture that I don't know if I want to add more to that. Um, But I mean, it is something that maybe in the future we will play with in small amounts because I love what whole cluster does to the aromatics. Yeah. Yeah. To me, I I definitely just as a wine drinker, not a winemaker, but I can kind of echo those sentiments from tasting the wine. I think uh, that seems on point. Um, just from tasting it. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Let's get into here how you think about decanning and temperatures that you like your wines. And specifically, we can start with Chardonnay and then move to Pinot. So I like my Chardonnay chilled, but not cold. Um, You Mm -hmm. lose so much of the aromatics when your glass is too cold and creating condensation on its own. So typically what I'll do is I have my wine fridge set at about 55 degrees and so what I'll do is I'll leave wine in there and then I'll pull it out for about 30 to 45 minutes to let it warm up just a little bit before I actually open the bottle for my whites I kind of like them in that 57 to like 60 range um I just think it adds it gives you more of the aromatics in the beginning as opposed to having wait for it to warm up to bring them out um and then for my reds, I, I mean, 
red wine, depending on the wine, either very slightly chilled where it's like in that 60 degree range or room temperature is good. Um, for decanting and especially what I recommend for people to do on this 19 Pinot because it is just so big and so complex and has a lot of layers is I like to decant um, for about an hour and kind of swirl it once every little while to let it really open up and then I'll come back to it, smell a little bit, smell the decanter. Um, you know, of course, if if you're in a rush, which sometimes we are when we decant wine, I'll do the kind of beat up process where you put your hand on the top of the decanter and just really swish it around to open it up a little bit faster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I try not to do that unless I'm getting really impatient. Um, <laughs> patience. Yeah. Some people get scared that they're going to hurt the wine, but you can actually kind of shake it up and it kind of gets the air in there and swirls it around. Right. So that's yeah. a, an okay thing to do. Yeah, it's totally, I mean, wine is resilient. Obviously you're not going to leave it in a decanter for six hours and beat it up and come back to it. But if you're just pouring it into that decanter for the first time, feel free to swish it around and kind of beat it up a little bit. You're going to think, wow, what am I doing to this? But it's just going to release the aromatics a little bit faster and get the oxygen into that wine a little quicker when you swirl it, as opposed to just leave it in the decanter. Yeah. And we're going to link the website in the show notes so people can go uh, purchase some of this wine and maybe even go back and listen to the episode while you're drinking some, which is always really fun to do and uh, kind of revisit. Um, are there any wines that are on the roadmap or things in the future that you're looking at for Fendler? So um, we did a rosé for 2019 and we're thinking mm -hmm. about um, now we're talking about doing maybe a little more Chardonnay coming up in the future. Um, it's, it's kind of that open discussion Kimberly and I have been having a lot where, you know, we've talked about rosé, more Chardonnay, and even possibly doing some sparkling wine in the future. Um, because Petaluma Gap, just that acid, we can actually pick when it's ripe for champagne styled sparkling wine. Um, so we're talking about even possibly doing that coming up in the next year or two. Uh, it's really exciting and something people can look forward to. Um, lastly, just to have a little fun, we asked people at the very end, what are you drinking when you're not drinking wine? Uh, could be <laughs> anything, but even water, I guess. But <laughs> Well, I am a sucker for a good gin and tonic. So find me a really great English gin and give me some tonic water, some juniper berries and a twist of lemon and i am a happy person well that sounds really refreshing got um tanqueray uh i'm trying to think there's hendrix there's there's so many good ones but erica this was really fun having you on and people you know if you want more content i've seen you're active on instagram live so people should definitely go check you out there and um erica this was really fun and appreciate you coming on no, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. 
In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at GoldenWestPod, or you can email us at GoldenWestPodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.